Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We're publishing this episode on March 11th, one year to the day since the World Health Organization declared COVID-19 as a pandemic. It's been a sad, difficult year for so many people. And those who live with a chronic medical condition have had many tough choices to face along the way. Was it safe to go to the doctor's office? What about getting treatments or surgery in a hospital treating COVID patients? Today, we're talking with two people who've been facing these questions as they managed a chronic condition, arthritis. They'll tell us how the pandemic changed how they care for their health and how they're feeling now that vaccines are finally available. Before we get to our interview, though, just a quick reminder to subscribe, follow, or favorite Health Now wherever you're listening to podcasts. Thank you. Okay, let's get started. Today's guests are both from the Arthritis Foundation. Rebecca Gillette is Director of Content Strategy and Planning, and Julie Eller is the Director of Patient-Centered Strategies. And together, they're the hosts of the Live Yes with Arthritis podcast. Ladies, welcome to Health Now. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. We may have some listeners out there who have a form of arthritis, but they don't know much about the Arthritis Foundation. So tell Mm -hmm. us a little bit about what it can do for them and where would you send them to look for more information? Absolutely. The Arthritis Foundation is the leading nonprofit organization that is available for people with arthritis across the country. We have amazing patient education resources that can help people support them on their arthritis journey, whether you're newly diagnosed or going through a flare or changing insurance plans, our patient education resources are here to support you in whatever form you like them, webinars, podcasts, uh, support groups, and so on. We also make sure that folks who have arthritis have support and community connections, meeting other people who have a shared experience like their own. And two of the things that I love that we do are really advocate for fewer barriers to care for people with arthritis, um, with our lawmakers and regulators, uh, and also advocating for and executing on uh, a, a really ambitious research agenda that helps us not only seek out new therapeutics for arthritis of all forms, um, but also find a cure eventually for arthritis. Excellent. That's a lot of great information, a lot of great resources there. Yeah, I think one thing I would add to what Julie said, she gave the perfect description of what we do (laughs) is another thing that we do is we raise awareness about arthritis. There are over a hundred different types of arthritis. And I think most people in the general population think of arthritis as just something that you get uh, when you're older or you're aging, but there is a wide spectrum of different forms of arthritis that we try Mm -hmm. to help educate and provide resources and information for, but also raise awareness in the general public that it is a, a public health issue. That makes sense. I think that's certainly something that a lot of people aren't even aware of just the sheer number of types of arthritis that there are out there. And so our listeners know the two of you aren't just talking from the perspective of people who work for an arthritis nonprofit, you both actually have a type of arthritis. Can you each tell us a little bit about yourselves, what you do at the foundation and also your condition? Um, Rebecca, let's start with you. Uh, Yeah, sure. Um, So I actually have a couple forms of arthritis. 
I have rheumatoid arthritis, which I was diagnosed with when I was 26. And I also have osteoarthritis in my spine, degenerative disc disease. And so I have both forms of uh, arthritis that people mostly know about um, that I've dealt with and, and I've had many surgeries. I've had a lot of surgeries dealing with my arthritis to try to help um, alleviate pain at the arthritis foundation. Uh, I came into the foundation actually on staff, but was a volunteer for probably over 10 years in, um, fundraising and advocacy efforts. And I came into the uh, foundation as a health messaging strategist and currently serve as the director of content strategy and planning. So all of the patient education that we do, um, trying to coordinate the information that we share with our audience. Excellent. Thank you for that. What about you, Julie? Yeah, sure. So I have been living with juvenile idiopathic arthritis persistent to adulthood. And that is a long phrase to say, I am someone who was diagnosed with arthritis when I was a kid in the first grade, and I have been living with it ever since. Uh, and I have been involved in the foundation in a couple of different ways, uh, like Rebecca, as they're either on the volunteer end or on the staff side. Um, but my focus has always been on coordinating our, our grassroots advocacy efforts, our patient engagement efforts. So really my focus is giving patients a platform to affect change with decision makers, letting them share their stories and watch people understand arthritis a little bit more deeply and make healthcare policy decisions that reflect that understanding. I was so glad earlier when Rebecca was talking about that there are more than a hundred different types of arthritis. And we know that arthritis is the leading cause of disability across the United States and that more than 54 million Americans are living with arthritis. And that that number includes 300,000 kids that live with arthritis. So there are very many faces that make up this disease. And Rebecca and I have the pleasure of representing a few of them uh, for our podcast and for our foundation. That's excellent. Thank you for sharing that. How did your treatment experience change during the pandemic for both of you individually, but also for the wider arthritis community? You know, a lot of people really switched pretty quickly to telemedicine instead of going in to see a doctor, especially in the early days of the pandemic. Were there procedures that were postponed and are those starting to pick back up when it comes to arthritis? Yeah, definitely. You know, in the beginning of the pandemic, it was a scary time, especially for our community. There were so many unknowns about this novel coronavirus and many people in our community are at high risk, whether it's age or medications that we're on to suppress our immune system if we have an inflammatory type of arthritis. And so, yeah, everybody pivoted to that telemedicine uh, model and it's not easy in our community, I think, because when you deal with chronic pain and joint pain, a lot of times, you know, our rheumatologists or our physicians want to get their hands on us to, to feel and in a, a telehealth setting, it's difficult to really articulate your pain. It's easier if a doctor can touch and feel your joints and feel it's warm and see that, you know, it's stiff and you can't move it. So you're limited in that way. But I know a lot of people in the community embraced the idea of telehealth because you were afraid to go into a doctor's office or into a hospital for appointments and, and very fearful of contracting uh, COVID. So it definitely changed the whole landscape, I think, of how we access care. And in our community, one of the nice things, well, 
nice things if you want to find a silver lining is that with a rheumatologist, you really have time in years. I mean, there's no cure for arthritis. And so you have years of building a relationship with your doctor. And if you've got one established already, I think it was a lot easier to do a telemedicine appointment versus if you were a new patient trying to find a new doctor, or you're just getting to know them in this situation, I think it it presented challenges. I know for myself, I did have a few visits that were telemedicine and I'm, I'm well-established with my doctor, have a great relationship with her. And for me, I kind of like the telehealth because I don't have to get in my car and drive and exert that extra energy just to have my checkup and check on labs. I kind of like it. And I, I do think it's, it's here to stay. And in some situations it makes sense to go into the office, but in others, I feel like if I'm just maintaining and my disease is under control, then I'm okay with telemedicine and I I hope we can continue to access it. Yeah. I think especially as it relates to access to care and building that relationship with a rheumatologist, rheumatologists are actually a, a type of doctor that we don't really have enough of. We face a workforce shortage in both our pediatric and adult rheumatologists. And so sometimes if you live in an area where maybe it's not, maybe it's a more rural area and there are fewer big hospitals, you might not have access to a rheumatologist in your immediate area. Um, And so telehealth has been a real advantage for folks who have those kinds of access challenges and getting their healthcare. And what I've been so pleased to see in the pandemic is that we've really expanded access for telemedicine providers to get to patients, whether it's across a state line um, or outside of a traditional healthcare system uh, so that we can see folks getting access to the care that they need without as many barriers that may have existed before. So I'm hopeful that some of the telemedicine changes that have really revolutionized how people can get access to and build relationships with providers, I'm hoping that that can be maintained in a post-pandemic world uh, so that we can really see more people having that greater sense of access, even if they can't be in person rather than driving your 10 hours or um, trying to see someone once a year, having that more frequent touch point based on that telemedicine is really, really exciting for the future. Right. If it's possible to think of a positive outcome from the pandemic, sounds like that would certainly be one thing. Yes. Yeah, (laughs) definitely. We have 300,000 children with juvenile arthritis and there is a huge shortage of pediatric rheumatologists. And I'm in Colorado and I know there are families in Wyoming and Montana who drive to Colorado to access Mm -hmm. a pediatric rheumatologist. And that's a whole day of driving a day of appointments and another full day to drive back home. And it takes away a lot of that time. And so this has really kind of opened that up to, to make it easier for patients to access. And, you know, here again in Colorado, we have the mountains and not as much access to specialists on, on the Western slope of Colorado. People have to drive into Denver for it and it's an additional expense. So improving access, but maybe even affordability. Right. Those would be some game changers, it seems like. Many people, and I think, Rebecca, you alluded to this earlier, many people with arthritis take autoimmune drugs that suppress their immune system. But I've heard a lot of people have stopped taking those medicines because they feared it would make them more susceptible to COVID. But that seems also like it would lead to more disease flares. What are you hearing about this, either from doctors that you work with at the Arthritis Foundation or members that you speak to? 
Well, I think one of the great things uh, Julie and I have the honor and privilege of doing is hosting our podcast. And we've interviewed um, uh, some of the top experts in the country about Mm -hmm. this from when COVID first started. I think we did within those first two weeks, we had a podcast and we were talking to um, uh, some infectious disease doctors. And the, the main theme we've heard from the beginning is that it's better to have your disease well under control and managed. And oftentimes if people stop their medication, it would ca- could cause a flare and um, could be hard to come back from. And then you're more susceptible to right. contracting an infection. And so it's really important that um, people understand that's a conversation you have with your doctor for sure. But what Julie and I think I've learned and Julie, correct me if I'm mm-hmm. wrong. No, um, is that <laughs> we want people to stay, um, with low disease activity and maintain their medications. And based on, uh, the medication guidance that was just released, that was released by the uh, American college of rheumatology last year. And we actually just did a podcast on <laughs> COVID and an update, um, on what's happening. Uh, the only thing that there is a caveat for is people who are on high dose of corticosteroids and uh, in general, um, pre-pandemic of COVID, um, a high dose of corticosteroids really does put you at a higher risk of infection. And so that is one caveat that they do list, but all of these biologic drugs that are out there treating different forms of inflammatory arthritis suppress our immune systems and, and various points of the process. And it's recommended that you, you stay on them so that your Mm -hmm. disease is well-managed. Right. Because it's a greater risk to have disease that is out of control, a flare. If you're flaring, you're more likely to be susceptible to COVID and any other infection than you would necessarily by the way that your immune system is being modulated by these therapeutics. So it's all about risk mitigation and it's all about moving forward with a plan that works for both you and your doctor. So if you have questions about it, it's not just listening to this podcast, it's talking to your doctor and really understanding what they recommend um, and what the American College of Rheumatology recommends. Your doctor will be expert at those guidelines and can help guide you through what the best plan is for you. Right, what makes sense right now. Are you expecting higher numbers of new or worsening arthritis cases in the first couple of years after the pandemic because you know people couldn't get to the doctor to get diagnosed or treated. Yeah, I, this is a really phenomenal question, and I think it's one that we'll probably ask about disease types outside of just arthritis over the next couple of years as we consider public health ramifications of the pandemic and closing down some of our our hospital systems in the way that we did. You know, unfortunately, I know that a lot of patients were not able to access in-person appointments last year, and we've talked about the amazing impact that telemedicine has had on maintaining access to care. And yeah, of course we think it's likely to stay, but there are a lot of folks who maybe delayed an appointment or ignored some of their symptoms or postponed a joint replacement surgery or any of those kind of interruptions in their care. And what we're always fighting for at the Arthritis Foundation is continuity of care, making sure that folks have the access that they need when they need it. Um, So I certainly think for folks who maybe have delayed an appointment or waited for a surgery, 
the best thing that you can do is to manage your care. And there are so many tools and mechanisms right now um, that enable folks to, to manage that care from home, whether it's you know going on Dr. Google and trying to find out more about your symptoms, exploring resources on WebMD or the Arthritis Foundation, and trying to understand whether you might have arthritis and where to go if you want to talk about it. Well, that's a great step. Getting those surgeries booked and on your schedule, another great step trying to stay active and healthy and maintaining some kind of healthy routine despite chronic pain, another great step. Um, the most important thing we can do to mitigate those higher number of cases later down the road is to just really take active control now in the ways that we can, uh, despite the fact that they might not be the same as they were a year ago. Yeah. Right. And one of the things that research tells us too, is early aggressive treatment of arthritis mm -hmm. usually has a better outcome. And one of the things that we have been doing at the foundation is we have uh, a patient reported outcome survey that we're doing. That's called the live yes insights uh, program. And in our questions this past year during the pandemic, we have learned from people who have participated that, yeah, I'm having more difficulty walking. I'm having more difficulty doing the things I need to do because I'm not accessing the things I was able to before because I'm sheltering at home to go get the physical activity and exercise that I need. A lot of people rely on swimming or walking in a pool to have less impact on their joints. And so even the simple things aside from going to a doctor, the mm -hmm. things that we do on a daily regular basis to manage our pain have not been accessible because of the pandemic. And so um, definitely we are hearing that people are having, a, are struggling. Do you have any sense that the, these kinds of issues are kind of improving at all? Oh, definitely. I think as we we're experiencing March for the second time in our pandemic, we're officially <laughs> a year in. Um, and I think you're right. People are people are learning how to develop whatever the healthy habits are, whatever the healthy routines are that are going to make their new lifestyle really manageable and healthy in its new shape and form. Um, so I certainly think folks are, are more able to go and pursue those doctor's appointments and get some of the things that they need, especially as maybe their neighborhood responds to the COVID-19 pandemic um, or has uh, cases on the decline. But a lot of folks are still you know, waiting to see. I think uh, many folks who have arthritis are in some of the high risk groups who have had access to some of the vaccine so far. And we hope that vaccine rollout will continue to build confidence in pursuing their care and getting out and getting active and doing the things that can really have a positive impact on people who are living with arthritis and their ability to manage their care in full. So Certainly, I am optimistic that that it's getting easier because we know how to deal with it a little bit more. We have so many answers about COVID-19 and arthritis and that we did not have a year ago. And I think just having that greater sense of clarity is really helpful for folks as they're navigating their routines and trying to live the healthiest life that they can. And I'm glad you mentioned um, vaccines. Both of you mentioned vaccines. People with autoimmune arthritis could be at the head of some of those lines to get vaccines, depending on their medications or other conditions they have along with arthritis. Can you tell us a little more about that aspect of, you know, where your place in line might be for a vaccine? Yeah, that's tricky. The vaccine availability, as we know, has not been an easy rollout across the country, but 
that's really determined at the state level and every state is handling it so differently. Right. I know, you know, when the distribution plan was first released here where I live in Colorado, I was up in that top tier, you know, high risk. But then as we've learned more about the actual virus and who's, who's you know, had severe illness and become affected, they've altered that. And I feel like every week a different list is coming out and who's available. There used to just be a category one and then it's one B or C. And now there's like, you know, B4. And (laughs) it's like, wait a minute, one B4, like, why don't we just do different numbers? I don't know, but it seems like it continues to change. And that's the fear. Actually, one of our volunteers had reached out and asked, is there anything that we can do? Because when you look at the list and it used to say immune, immunocompromised and those with suppressed immune systems or weakened immune systems um, due to medication. And now it doesn't say that on the list and I don't know where I fall. And so there's still a lot of, I think, clarity to be had at the state levels, but uh, the default answer would be talk to your doctor about it and contact your state health department directly. And uh, yes, we're at higher risk for severe infections in general, when you are on a a medication that uh, weakens your immune system, but definitely talking to your doctor and figuring out in the health department where you lie would be the best way to go. Um, It's not clear whether people with autoimmune arthritis versus other chronic conditions um, like cancer or HIV would fall. And there's, you know, confusion. What is immunocompromised versus immunosuppressed, right? Mm. And so really just seeing what your state has outlined is, is really kind of the only thing we can refer people to. But advocating for yourself, you know, I, I'm, I'm immune suppressed on my medication. I work around a lot of people, you know, is there a way that I could get the vaccine? I think you have to talk about that with your doctor and they might be able to guide you. I think one of the success strategies that patients who have had the vaccine and who live with immune compromising forms of arthritis, um, one of the success strategies that has been apparent is that they have been vigilant about learning their state guidelines, getting pre-registered for vaccines when they can. Um, I think the best thing is, you know, don't wait for the information to come to you, seek it out and talk about that information with your doctor, bring it with you to your appointment, even if it is a telehealth appointment and uh, use that time to really understand how you can be a proactive partner in getting vaccinated and bringing down, or I guess, bringing up our, our level of herd immunity, so to speak. Right. Especially to your point from earlier, these things Mm. seem to be changing somewhat frequently. So it's kind of important to keep your eye on, you know, what it's like where you are. Right. And I would think that the majority of people with arthritis have osteoarthritis and most, most of them are over the age of 60, 65, right? So hopefully they've been able to get their vaccines already and, and have that level of protection and, and, feel, feel that safety, that sense of safety that, okay, I've, I've done what I can to protect myself from severe illness. So hopefully I know for sure the rheumatologist community in general and the American college of rheumatology are really encouraging people to go ahead and get their vaccines when it is their turn. Right. Are there any concerns people with arthritis should have about the vaccine? 
It's a great question. And when we hear a lot from patients, like, what do I need to know? Patients like me were not included in those initial trials. What do I, what do, I do from here? Um, and we're really pleased. The American College of Rheumatology has recently released some vaccination guidance for people with rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases. We have worked hard to provide a patient-centered um, kind of download, understanding, analysis of what those guidelines are. You know, the biggest concerns that folks have are usually related to timing their medication. Do I need to pause my medication to get these vaccines? Do I need to space out my biologic treatment by another week to make room for, for the vaccination process? How do I time it with two doses? Should I try to get the single dose shot? There's so many questions like this. And the guidelines really help to answer some of those or at least provide guidelines on how you could talk to your doctor about them. The biggest key takeaway is that the benefits of the COVID vaccine outweigh the risks for people with arthritis. For a select group of medications, the timing may need to be adjusted to maximize your vaccine response, but the best thing you can do to find out about that is just talk to your doctor and find out what you should be doing and how you can be considering moving forward. And if you have questions about how other patients have done, we have resources at the Arthritis Foundation. We recently created this patient voices video series where arthritis patients share their experience getting the vaccine and can help provide some, some helpful, friendly tips there. Um, you can hear all those stories at our website, arthritis.org slash care dash connect. Is there anything that you can think of you'd like to cover that I didn't ask you about? I think the only thing on my end is uh, to really just emphasize that the Arthritis Foundation has an open door for anybody that's experiencing chronic pain that might be arthritis, but they don't know what it is yet. You know, it's, it's a very common experience that we as humans have. Um, and oftentimes it may be related to an arthritis or rheumatic condition. And we've got lots of resources and supports that can make life just a little bit easier with chronic pain. Um, so we've got a, a big tent over at the Arthritis Foundation, and we'd love to Love to connect with anybody who is in need of a resource, in need of a new friend, um, or just you know wants to get involved. We're we would love to have you. So that's what I'd like to add. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I think what I would add is you know when I first got involved with the Arthritis Foundation, I was a a new occupational therapist. I had had rheumatoid arthritis for a few years, but first of all, the internet wasn't what it is today when I was first diagnosed. Um, but I, I was in my mid twenties and didn't know anybody who had it. And I kind of left myself in a really vulnerable position, not seeking any resources or education. And if I had what we have at the foundation today, back then, I really feel like the course of my disease might've been a little bit more different. Maybe I would have had a couple less surgeries had I learned and gotten the patient education that I needed. And if there's one thing that I'm grateful for um, about the foundation itself, when, you know, as a volunteer for many years before joining on staff was that it connected with, it connected me with other people who go through what I'm going through on a daily basis. And that alone has been probably the most powerful thing for me. Um, that sense of feeling like you're alone and nobody understands your pain goes away when you get connected to somebody who understands it. And so mm -hmm. if there's anything I've gotten out of being involved and working with the foundation, it's the connections I've had with other people. It's really hard to communicate chronic pain to family and friends, 
But when you walk into a room of a group of people who have pain like you, you don't even need to speak any words and they understand. And that to me is the most powerful thing aside from doing advocacy work and learning (laughs) that my voice matters and that if I share my story, I can help other people like me to get better access to care, affordability to care, and um, just knowing that their voice matters. So personally, you know, we may be, I may be on staff now, but for me, that's the, the one thing I'm always sharing is that getting connected to other people really is what power uh, helped to empower me to take control of my arthritis. So there's so much power in being able to talk to someone who understands what you're going through. So, um, whether it's in a, in a group or on your, on your podcast, um, and once again, <laughs> let uh, our listeners know where they can find your podcast. Yeah. Anywhere you listen to your podcast, uh, our podcast is the live yes with arthritis podcast. And you can also find it on our website at arthritis.org slash podcast. Rebecca Gillette and Julie Eller. Thank you so much for being with us today and for sharing your, your insights and your, your experiences. We appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It's been a pleasure to talk. Yeah. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for listening to health now today. Hope you can join us next time.